Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Kat, the host of Haunting History Podcast, the podcast that reaches back into the past to the stories and headlines that still haunt us today. Approximately 76.2% of abducted children who are murdered are dead within the first three hours of their abduction. In so many of these cases, someone saw something, suspected something, or knew something, and never reported it. On June 26, 1980, Carrie Patterson, a friendly and outgoing 15-year-old, left her home in Fullerton, California to meet up with some friends. She never returned. Six months later, her skull and portions of her remains were found in an oil field in Tonner Canyon, kicking off what would become a four-decade mystery, leaving her family heartbroken, a passionate cold case investigator without answers, and a newspaper reporter without an ending. Join us on November 4th as we talk to her family, the cold case investigator from the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and others still searching for who killed Carrie Patterson. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Haunting History Podcast, and subscribe wherever you listen. Our cold case series starts November 4th. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Ruthie May was a 52-year-old mentally ill woman living in a deprived public housing area in Chicago's South Side. She complained of her fear of the person in the wall, but no one believed her. Even when she called 911 late one rainy April evening and screamed that someone was coming through her bathroom cabinet, no one believed her. Even when police showed up at her door, they assumed the call had been some kind of hoax when Ruthie didn't answer the door. But when no one had heard from Ruthie the following day, or the day after that, the police returned and made their way into the apartment. What they found was chilling. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 15, Ruthie May McCoy. According to the legend of the Candyman, if you look into a mirror and chant the name Candyman five times, he will crawl out from inside your mirror, covered in blood and bees, and kill you with his hook. For you see, the Candyman is a vicious killer. 
with a bloody hook for a hand. And he has nothing but murder on his mind. They say that many years ago, the Candyman was a real man. In the days of slavery, the Candyman was a black slave called Daniel Robitaille. He worked on a plantation in New Orleans. He was a talented painter and was chosen by the plantation owner to paint a portrait of his daughter. Daniel fell in love with the white plantation owner's daughter. When the racist owner discovered that his daughter and Daniel were in love, he raised an angry mob and chased Daniel out of town. The mob, armed with deadly pitchforks and a pack of dogs, chased Daniel through the fields and across the streams. Terrified and exhausted, Daniel stopped by an old barn for a moment's rest, but soon after, the angry mob caught up to him and took out a rusty saw. They cut off his hand and covered him in honey before throwing him into a beehive. It wasn't long before the hundreds of thousands of bees stung Daniel all over and began feasting on him like candy. In his last moments alive and with his last breath, he cursed the men and vowed to return one day and have his revenge. They say his spirit would never rest and now his ghost walks the world for all of eternity, appearing when you stand in front of a mirror and call his name five times. The 22nd of April 1987 was a cold, rainy night on Cabrini Street on the south side of Chicago. 52-year-old Ruthie Mae McCoy made her way towards her Abbott Tower apartment, passing children throwing broken glass bottles at one another and four different people telling her they needed money. The Abbott Towers housed over 3,500 low or no-income non-whites, mainly African-Americans. Ruthie swung the broken main door open and shuffled through the corridor towards the main stairwell. The few light bulbs that once littered the long stretch of hallway were all gone, broken, burned out or stolen. This meant that the walk to the elevator was almost pitch black. Ruthie closed the elevator door and pressed for floor 11. It was common for the elevator to be out of use and at 52 years of age, she couldn't face the walk up the 11 flights of stairs. Once she arrived, she made her way to her apartment. She walked past more vacant flats than ones that were occupied, some boarded up, some with kicked in doors and mouldy walls. She opened her apartment 11.09, locked the door behind her 
and placed a well-used dining chair in front of it for extra safety. At 8.45pm, a 911 operator received a frantic call from Ruthie. She told the operator, quote, I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street and some people next door are totally tearing this down. You know they throwed the cabinet down. The elevator is working. Unquote. The operator didn't immediately understand what Ruthie was trying to say. They attempted to make sense of the incident, but her responses weren't fully intelligible, and all they could gather from Ruthie was that someone in the apartment next door was coming through her bathroom cabinet. Ruthie suddenly hung the phone up. The operator recorded the call as a, quote, disturbance with a neighbour, unquote. However, another call came through to 911, this time from a different apartment. The caller reported screaming from an apartment nearby, they thought 1109. Just moments later, another call came through to 911, this time reporting gunshots coming from apartment 1109. The operator ensured the callers that the police were on their way, and when they arrived, two police officers waited outside, whilst four made their way onto the 11th floor. They walked towards the apartment and took out their guns. The officers knocked and made their presence known, but there was no answer. The officers knocked again. No answer. They got in contact with the housing office attendant, drove over and gained a key for the apartment. But when they returned and tried to unlock the door, they discovered the key didn't fit. The housing office attendant told police that they didn't have another key and they'd have to wait for the tenant to answer. Whilst they were waiting, the officers made inquiries in the entire wing of the 11th floor, but because of the number of vacant properties in that wing, they were unable to corroborate the gunshot story. The only occupied property directly across from Ruthie's apartment was home to an elderly woman and her two adult daughters, all of whom said they hadn't heard any gunshots or seen anything suspicious. The officers then tried calling Ruthie's phone, but after hearing it ring from inside the apartment and no answer, they decided to leave. The following day, Ruthie's neighbour, Deborah Lasley, became concerned when she didn't receive her usual morning visit from her. The afternoon came and went, and by the evening, and with no word from Ruthie, Deborah decided to call the police to report the lack of contact. The 911 operator recorded the neighbour as being concerned, as she'd seen police at the apartment yesterday and nearly 24 hours later, she had still seen no sign of Ruthie. Police officers were dispatched and arrived at the apartment complex where they met with a security guard. The police knocked and waited. 
but after receiving no response yet again, the police suggested they break down the door. The security guard told the officers that they would be liable to be sued if they did so. The police left, and the following evening, Matthew, a representative from Chicago Housing Association, called a carpenter to unlock the door to the apartment. Matthew made his way into the apartment, where he smelt the unmistakable stench of rotting flesh. He walked towards the bedroom, and after seeing the door was slightly ajar, pushed it open. He found Ruthie Mae McCoy lying face down in a pool of her own blood, surrounded by various papers and documents. She had been shot four times, through her left thigh, her left shoulder, her right arm and her stomach. The police peered into the small, damp bathroom and found a rectangular hole in the space where the medicine cabinet should be. Next to the hole, one either side of the dingy white cinder blocks, were magazine pages declaring miracles from God. Inside that hole, they found a series of pipes that presumably the killer would have had to navigate their way between in order to access the apartment. Ruthie Mae McCoy was born in Arkansas, in a small town south of Memphis, with a population of just under 2,000. She lived there with her seven siblings, but as a child, She and her family moved to Chicago's South Side as a means for a better life. With the arrival of the domestic gas fire in most family homes, her father worked long hours as a coal loader, and with a family of nine, money was always tight. Ruthie May joined Phillips High School, the same school that both Nat King Cole and Sam Cooke attended. Although she didn't stay long and began working various low-paid jobs, at one time being a housekeeper and another a laundromat attendant. She was, however, unable to hold down a job and by her early 20s, she had begun to exhibit some signs of mental illness. Of course, in the 1950s and 60s, mental illnesses weren't widely recognised and she wasn't properly diagnosed. She would often talk to herself, but her family lay this down to religious issues, and her siblings thought she had the, quote, devil in her. This led to Ruthie becoming less attached to her family, and living in Chicago's South Side in the 1960s meant that she had to become assertive and hard in order to survive. The population in Chicago's South Side decreased for the first time in the 1960s, owing to the lack of jobs. And this meant that the poorer neighbourhoods were forced to be home to large plots of public housing, which, as will become apparent soon, made way for a number of problems including even harsher poverty and violence. 
When Ruthie turned 27, she became pregnant, out of wedlock, and gave birth to a baby girl at Cook County Hospital. She called her Vanita. In 1962, being a poor, black, single mother meant that there was a severe lack of medical, educational, social and psychological services available to Ruthie. Over the next few years of Vanita's childhood, and once she reached teenage years, she was forced to live with her aunts and uncles when Ruthie was institutionalised, which was often. Ruthie would come home, take Vanita back and be doing fine. But when she decided on occasion to stop taking her medication, she would regress. She'd become angry and pick fights on the street with people she didn't know. By the time Vanita was old enough to leave school and start working herself, she began dating and eventually had a child. However, just a year later, Vanita was found guilty of aggravated battery and served her sentence at Cook County Jail. Ruthie May agreed to take care of her grandchild, but when her apartment on the west side of Chicago had flooded, she was placed with Chicago Housing Association. When requesting the emergency housing, Ruthie May asked to be placed in an area near relatives. She also asked specifically not to be placed in a high-rise, but when her approved accommodation came through, she was given the high-rise 11th floor apartment. Her new address and where she stayed for the remainder of her life was apartment 1109 in the Abbott Homes. When Vanita finished her jail sentence, she moved in with Ruthie May and brought along her boyfriend and second child. But after two years of living in the cramped apartment, Vanita found it too difficult and after many arguments and a constant state of tension, she, her boyfriend and her children moved out. After this, Ruthie's life seemed to spiral downhill yet again. She felt depressed and impatient. She received little support and rarely saw her grandchildren. She was opinionated and argumentative. It wasn't rare for Ruthie May to get into fights with the neighbourhood bullies. Ruthie May lived in fear of being robbed and changed her locks a number of times. She knew that in order to survive, she couldn't be too friendly. It was best to keep to herself. If people knew your business, then you'd likely get mixed up in drug dealing or criminal activities. Ruthie's behaviour began to become more paranoid and obsessive. She stopped eating and began dressing inappropriately for whichever season it was. In the summer, she was seen in thick winter coats and boots. Not long after this, Ruthie May was taken to Illinois State Psychiatric Institute after a worrying incident with her grandson that saw him receive numerous deep cuts to his face and body. She told authorities that it was an accident 
and that he'd fallen down the stairs, but they didn't believe her. Whilst Ruthie May was at the psychiatric institute, she was diagnosed as a residual type schizophrenic, a form of schizophrenia that focuses on symptoms such as social isolation, talking to yourself, not making sense, and unusual beliefs such as being highly superstitious. A follow-up appointment found Ruthie May's condition was not as severe as first thought. Quote, she integrated quickly, her hygiene was good, her communication skills were good, unquote. Over the next few years, Ruthie May's symptoms were still apparent, but became less frequent. Up to this point, she had mainly tried to keep to herself, but in the mid-1980s, she joined general education development classes and her well-being began to improve significantly. The classes were part of the CHA Public Housing and City Colleges of Chicago partnership. Here, she flourished. She saw the kindness of those around her, genuinely wanting to help. She was excited about life and spoke about how once she got her qualifications, she was going to train to be a nurse. She was much older than most of the students taking classes and quickly became a mother figure to many. Her fellow students and teachers referred to her as warm, considerate, and as a mother figure, especially when offering the younger women parenting advice. People respected her because she would stand her ground. She wasn't one to turn and run or be quiet. She began to trust people again, and she was trying her hardest in her early 50s to make a difference and try to better her life. She had even started to gain weight and dressed more appropriately for the weather. During this time, however, she was still scared of living in the Abbott apartment building. She would complain about being alone and say that people were coming for her and her money. Unfortunately, because of her mental illness issues, she wasn't taken seriously, and even when she occasionally was, there wasn't anything those close to her could do about it. For the years preceding her death, Ruthie May had made numerous requests to be moved out of the unsafe apartment block, or, if that wasn't possible, just to be moved to a lower floor where she may have a slightly more secure bathroom. Her request was never granted. The physical and economic conditions for non-white populations in social housing areas are generally poor, with high unemployment and low pay. In places like Greater London, New York and even now Chicago, there is a severe shortage of affordable housing due to gentrification, so people have no choice but to stay put, often in unsafe housing. The system is such that it aims to keep the residents of places like the Abbott Building Project out of the mainstream. They are the poor, the unwell, and those that have slipped through the gap, 
People are continuously surrounded by crime and drugs, and there's almost no way to keep yourself and your family safe. In the 1970s, there was a spike in drug addiction because of the increase of cocaine. In order to support this expensive habit, burglaries and robberies became a common walk of life for the residents at Abbott House. In the 1960s, just before the increase of cocaine usage and dealings, a gang called the Gangster Disciples was formed in the south side of Chicago. Although their leader, Larry Hoover, is currently serving six life sentences for a number of offences, including conspiracy, murder, extortion and money laundering. At the time of Ruthie's murder, the gang was very much working its way to becoming one of the most influential and deadly gangs in the US. The gang began operating out of the high-rise apartments in Abbott House, and vacant apartments were regularly used as drug dens. Ruthie May knew that the criminals there didn't care if you were old or vulnerable, and in fact often used this as even more reason as to why they should take advantage. In February of 1987, Ruthie finally received some good news. She wasn't getting any help from the Chicago Housing Association, so she assumed she would be in Abbott Homes for the rest of her life. Her apartment rent cost $46 a month, equivalent to $107 in today's money, and her general assistance aide gave her just $154 a month, so moving wasn't an option for her. However, just two months before she was killed, Ruthie had started receiving supplementary security income, known as SSI, because of her mental disability. This was backdated to the date she applied for it and meant that she was entitled to nearly $2,000 of payments. She planned to use this money to move out of Abbott Homes and into somewhere safer. The papers found under and around Ruthie's body were mainly class papers from her current schooling, but importantly, also consisted of some welfare grant letters. The money that Ruthie had been awarded as SSI was likely common knowledge in the housing complex. Although she had saved most of it, Ruthie had also bought a new winter coat and a number of other items. This will have raised suspicion amongst keen-eyed residents of the surrounding apartment blocks. The police theorised that this is the reason Ruthie was killed. For money. They concluded that the killer had lain wait in apartment 1108, in the room that was attached to Ruthie's bathroom. Although police had been to apartment 1108 before, and found nothing suspicious, including no obvious access through the bathroom cabinet. They soon realised that because of the time it had taken from Ruthie's murder to the start of the investigation, it was possible that the murderer had nailed the cabinet back into the wall, removed any incriminating evidence, 
and moved on. The problem was, apartment 1108 wasn't actually occupied and hadn't been for many months. Inside the property, there was no evidence whatsoever about who might have been there. It's a well-known fact in the Abbott homes that if an apartment is left vacant and not boarded up by the CHA quickly enough, people will ransack it for everything of value, be it a kitchen sink or a bathroom medicine cabinet. The apartments could also have been used as a drug den. The police found that, after talking to a number of residents nearby, there were two names that kept coming up as possible suspects. Edward Turner was just 19 years old at the time of Ruthie's murder and had no criminal conviction. John Hondras, who was 25, had a criminal record for robbery. Both suspects were arrested and charged on suspicion of murder. The police theory was that Edward and John had waited until they heard Ruthie arrive home. They needed her inside so she could tell them where her money was hidden. The money was never recovered and the suspects didn't ever admit to stealing it, so it's impossible to know how much or even if they managed to find it. Chillingly, Ruthie's phone, the one that the officers had heard ringing from inside the locked apartment on the night of her murder, was never recovered. Meaning the murderers either returned later on to steal it, or they were in the apartment when the police were outside, unable to unlock the door. While searching Edward and John's apartment, They were led to a friend's apartment where they found Ruthie's television and rocking chair. The trial for the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy took place in March of 1990. The main witness was Tim Brown, a friend of the suspects. He told police that he had been in apartment 1108 on the night of the murder. He was with a number of friends including the suspects Edward and John. One of Tim's friends had shown the suspects the adjoining walls behind the medicine cabinet. A little while later, Tim witnessed Edward and John removing the medicine cabinet in apartment 1108 and making their way into the adjacent apartment 1109. He then heard a number of gunshots before the pair returned with a TV and rocking chair, before fleeing to stash the items in a friend's apartment. A number of witnesses testified that the pair had either asked them to hold the items for a few days, or even in one case, that Edward had bragged about shooting someone. Tim testified that Edward and John had returned to clean up the scene and remove the bullets and shell casings in order to prevent them being identified. However, during the trial, Tim's story differed from what he had told police. He said that it was actually a different friend who had broken into apartment 1109 with John, and ultimately, Edward wasn't involved. 
it's unclear why he changed his story. There are many possible reasons as to why this may be, including drugs, gangs and intimidation. Of course, he could be telling the truth, but as has been proven time and time again in court cases, the more a witness or suspect changes their story, the more likely they are to be deemed untruthful or deceptive. Edward denied his involvement, but did indicate that John had been absent for the group for 30 minutes at the time of the murder. He also said that at 2am the following morning, he went to apartment 1109 and the door was unlocked. He opened it slightly, looked inside and saw a body lying on the floor of the bedroom. This was later disproved as the police and Matthew, the CHA staff member, had returned the following evening and the door was still locked. Because most of the evidence found was circumstantial and the witness testimony was hugely flawed, both Edward and John were released due to lack of evidence. To this day, the case remains officially unsolved. Ruthie was buried on the 30th of April 1987 in Homewood, a village just a 15-minute drive from where she was murdered. The Chicago Housing Association were not only aware of the general issues surrounding the housing complex with regards to robberies and burglaries, but they were also well aware of the medicine cabinet design flaw. The cabinets were designed to be easily removed and the plumbing pipes were placed immediately behind them so that if needed, a plumber or housing agency staff member could gain access to any leaks or problems with the piping. The cabinets themselves are simply nailed onto the walls, so easily removed with just sheer force. And there's no problem in sliding in between the walls from an adjacent apartment, or sometimes even up vertically between apartments. Many criminals attempting to escape an arrest will use this as an escape if the authorities ever come knocking. Ruthie May had actually reported a bathroom cabinet break-in less than a year before her murder. She reported the break-in to the CHA, but they didn't come to fix it, let alone address the building-wide issue, despite there being a number of complaints and concerns from tenants. The solution to this deadly problem could be fairly simple and inexpensive. If the cabinets were bolted together and attached with a certain type of tool, the removal of the cabinets would be much harder and only achievable with a power tool. Tragically, this wasn't done before Ruthie's death and even after, no changes were made to the flawed bathroom design. There were numerous reports from tenants worrying about their safety because of this very issue. One tenant of the same Abbott building, a few floors below Ruthie, had been in her living room one evening when she heard a noise coming from the bathroom. She'd lived there a number of years and hadn't heard anything like it before, so she knew something was wrong. 
but before she was able to investigate, the bathroom door swung open, and a man, not much older than a teenager, ran towards the front door and bolted out of it. The man's accomplice had been found still in the bathroom moments later, and the tenant held him down whilst calling the police. The accomplice admitted that they had managed to gain entry by climbing up through the walls from the empty apartment just below. The CHA wouldn't rehouse that tenant, and the only way they could think to be safe was by tying a rope to the bathroom door when they all went to sleep. It's been reported that many other Abbott residents tended to place heavy furniture in front of the bathroom door, and if they needed the toilet during the night, they would have to use a bucket or bowl. There are plenty of examples of the poorer population living as second-class citizens, and there are many issues with the rich and powerful being the ones to decide on what support everyone else receives and ultimately how they should live. In the UK, the Grenfell disaster in 2017 saw 72 mainly non-white people die because of a fire that occurred due to a fridge. The amount of deaths that occurred as a result of the fire were much higher than first anticipated due to the cheap cladding on the outside of the building and ultimately a result of deregulation, spending cuts and neglect. Structural inequalities allowed this tragedy to occur and the historic displacement and exclusion that prevents poor people from living in safe and affordable housing is still ongoing. The whole Candyman urban legend and the stories and films that have followed comment on the Western world's history of racism and its continuation to this day. And I really do mean to this day, not only unofficially and systematically, but also in legislation terms. The act of lynching, defined here as bodily injury on the basis of perceived race, colour, religion, or nationality, wasn't actually made a federal crime in the US until February 2020. It's also worth noting that the 1992 Candyman film focuses more on the white fears associated with black poverty. Another huge issue with Ruthie's case and ultimately unsolved status is with the police's failure to act accordingly and in a timely manner. The investigation and subsequent trial lacked a huge amount of physical evidence. This was due to a very obvious evidence cleanup operation that had happened in the hours and possible day following the murder. There was only one shell casing and one bullet found, despite there being four bullet wounds on Ruthie's body. There were also no fingerprints found due to the surfaces and walls being wiped down. It's no surprise that the 1980s police officers in Chicago did not always take crime reports seriously, especially coming from the poor, non-white communities of, in this case, Abbott Housing, not dissimilar to today. 
The police defended their actions because they couldn't confirm the gunshot reports. However, there's very little chance the neighbours would risk their safety by talking to the police, especially when the murderers could still be in the apartment. There have been reports of police informants' apartments being set on fire in the past, with no chance of escape owing to the lack of fire exits or back doors. It's no surprise the police struggled to find people willing to talk. The police also stated the high number of emergency prank calls that were known to come from the Abbott Housing Project and its surrounding communities as a reason to deem the call less serious than it actually was. Despite the tragic death of a mentally disabled 52-year-old Chicago resident, the Chicago Police Department refused to launch an investigation into the way the case was handled. They defended their decisions at the time by referring to their inability to break into Ruthie's apartment because they didn't have an appropriate warrant, nor did they believe there to be a crime in progress. There is some dispute as to whether Ruthie changed the lock on her door herself without informing the housing association, or if, as her daughter Venita says, the housing association didn't properly file the key when the locks changed. Due to underfunding, this is highly probable. It's well known that in the Abbott building, many emergency calls are ignored or not properly investigated because of the elevators not working. This is something that Ruthie made a point of letting the 911 operator know. The elevator issue and lack of police ability or willingness to climb the stairs was clearly apparent for Ruthie to mention this. Ruthie's death is a prime example of what happens when a person's rights and needs are neglected. Ruthie was ignored and made out to be a quote, crazy person, whose desperate pleas for help ultimately went unanswered. Even after her tragic murder, many other poor, non-white Abbott Holmes residents were ignored and neglected. They were victims of rapes, beatings and murders over the next 20 years. The gentrification of Chicago in the early 2000s saw most of the Chicago Housing Authority's projects, including Abbott House, being demolished. The problematic reality of ostracising individuals and oppressing them means that they are forced to choose between rent and food, doctor's visits and education costs. Neglecting one or more of these points forces people into even harsher poverty, and many turn to drugs, violence and gangs to survive. With this in mind, the urban myth of the Candyman is much less scary and much less deadly than the reality. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.